You're listening to the preaching podcast of Victory Baptist Church in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, led by Pastor Jeremy Kobernack. It is our desire that you will be helped by this Bible message. Take your Bibles to the book of John in chapter number 9. What a privilege it is to preach, and I don't say this with flattery, but at the great Victory Baptist Church. What a testimony down through the years, and of course, um, more recently with Pastor Jeremy, and that's when I've gotten familiar with the church, and I enjoy watching the live stream. I enjoy stealing ideas. I love to see all of the work that goes behind the scenes. Thank you, guys. If you may not think, and you probably know, you see the many people that are watching, but there are, there are people all across America that watch your live stream, and I'm one of them all the way out in Iowa, so thank you for the hard work. Uh, each and every service, you know, we're a different time zone, so I'm able to jump on sometimes even live and other times later just to see what Brother Jeremy preached so that I can have a message for the next service. And uh, But no, thank you. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. And then my wife, Charity, was here with the her family, the Upley family, back when she was about 15 years old or so. That was about 30 or 40 years ago. And uh, no, I'm joking about the the time there, but... Uh, what a testimony, and, and so many friends here that I have seen and known from way back in the day across the way. If I started to mention you all, uh, it would take a while, but I mentioned just a few. Of course, uh, the Russes, Brother David and Miss Jennifer, dear friends of ours, and I've known them for quite a while. And the Bybees back here, Brother Dan Bybee was at camp when I got called to preach. He was there. And even Miss, if I'm, if I'm going to say your name wrong, I apologize. Sudemeyer, am I saying it right? I was in Mexico City, and her dad was a missionary, and I was there during the week and, and, and was at their church, and what a great work uh, that it was. And, of course, Brother Nathan Johnson and his wife, and, and I, I, I just need to stop because I could just go, keep going through the room. And then, of course, my sister Joanna. How many of you I would like to add to the pot of money that I've got to tell some stories about my sister. She is my oldest sister, so uh, if you'd like to add to the pot, I'll donate it to the pie auction coming up next Tuesday night. Teenagers, any takers? I thank God for my sister, Joanna. I mean that. And if I were to tell some stories, she would have better ones to tell on me. But I, I do say this with all of my heart, and I'm going to try not to get emotional saying it. But when you stop and you think, about growing up in a home with a lot of siblings and, and um, just an active going kind of a home. To say this is just amazing and encouraging uh, to my children and the next generation and a testimony to say not one time did my sister Joanna ever uh, present a bad influence in my life. Now, I probably did for her, but not one time did she ever discourage me, not one time. Did she ever uh, do anything, you know, to say, well, don't tell mom and dad or, you know, in any kind of way uh, was not a bad influence at all. And you say, well, she was an older sibling. So, you know, older sibling, she wouldn't have been the bad influence. She was probably cracking the whip on you. Let me just let me just put it in a brief story of her attitude towards me. And I mean this with all of my heart. I, I could tell some embarrassing stories, uh, but. Again, this is what, what overreaches all, and that is when I went to college, and it really was no different than growing up, but even in college, when I was away at college, and my sister, uh, I think, was then married and uh, in Geneseo, Illinois, and I'm in college, and I still have a note in the back of my college Bible uh, that my sister sent me, and it wasn't just one, 
but I saved this one in particular. And I was going through a downtime. She didn't know that, but she was in tune with God, spirit-filled, praying and walking with God. And she had written me a note that said, there are going to be times where the temptation comes on so strong or when the desire to quit comes on so strong or many things like that she uh, talked about and she said, just don't quit. Our Heavenly Father is looking down from above and I quote, and he's cheering you on, don't quit. And I wonder where I would be had a sibling uh, not uh, been that kind of an encouragement to me. So thank you, Joanna. And if you want to know my sister's heart, just look or read uh, the book that um, she wrote about my mom or the lessons from my mom, and I will take commission from that plug right there. But I, I thank God. And, and let me just say this. I understand that they are family, and I respect Brother Jeremy so much. I've looked up to him for many, many years. Matter of fact, it was at his camp uh, there in Geneseo, Illinois, or outside of Geneseo, Illinois, as an 11th grader that I was called to preach. And I wouldn't be preaching tonight if it wasn't for God using your pastor. He Put him there, if you will, as Esther was brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. In my life and in my brother-in-law's life, Sam Epley Pastors near Murfreesboro, Tennessee, he was called to preach the next year at that same camp. And I thank God for his testimony in my life. But let me just say this, and I don't say it just because they're family. I say it because my wife and I have been talking about it on this trip. We're on vacation and family time, and we just wanted to come spend time with family. And there is a dearth for leadership across America to see this kind of leadership where people are actually showing up to work. I mean, most churches in America, uh, the pastor's off doing something else. There's no staff there, no secretary there, certainly no school, no radio station, uh, no live stream. I mean, just small little 15 to 20 uh, people. There's no kids programs or youth programs. And to see all the kids, to see all the classes, to see all the designs, to see all the, the, the heart and the Bible study behind it, if you're not careful, if you're not careful, you can get used to it. You can get used to it. So I would just challenge you and encourage you uh, to be grateful in this season of gratitude. Be grateful for what you have. And the staff, I'm, I'm down there fighting jealousy and covetous. And I, I'm, not, I'm not joking. We have phenomenal staff at our church, and I love them, uh, but, but we need more of them. When I look up here and see all these men up here and just the servants of God, I am grateful to be a part of this church. John chapter number 9. And we're going to begin reading in verse number one. I want to expound and study just three words tonight that have literally changed my life. Not in one message, not in one Bible reading time, not in just one moment that I heard and I look back on. But each and every day, these words change my life. They are the alarm clock that keep going off in my head each and every day. It's the why behind every what. It's the bullseye of the target. It's the of my Christian life. It's the drill sergeant, if you will. Get up, Joseph. Let's go. Get up, dad. Get up, husband. Get up, Christian. It's the wind at my back. It is. These are the truths tonight that drive me each and every day. It's like the fuel in your tank. The car can look pretty, but if you don't have the fuel in it, it's not getting very far, unless, of course, you drive a Tesla. John chapter number 9, verse number 1. Can we stand just one last time? Would you mind doing that together? And we'll stand just briefly. The Bible says, and I, by the way, maybe you'll write these three words down and as we expound them. And when you see these words, uh, may they, and maybe you'll just pick one of them out that really um, meant something to you, but uh, may they drive you, may they go with you beyond Tonight, verse number one, the Bible says, and as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind 
from his birth. Now that is a key word there, uh, not one of the three words, but it's key to understand the context of scripture. And his disciples asked him saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered in verse 3, Neither hath this man sinned, speaking in terms of the blindness, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Verse 4 says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way therefore, and washed, and came seeing. I love that verse, don't you? Our text verse is found in verse number 4. If you'll leave your Bibles open to that, we'll look back at it. Father, we need you. Thank you for the great opportunity to stand in your place. This is not ours. No one in this room, Lord. It is the shepherded by uh, Pastor Cobernat, and I'm grateful for his leading to allow me to stand here. But God, this is your place, and I pray that we will stand in awe and in reverence of what you have chosen tonight, church and assembly and ecclesia together together to be fed. May this truth tonight, Lord, remind us for some, teach us for others. Lord, I pray it will stir and change all of us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Verse number four is our text, and the first word is a small word. It might seem insignificant, but that word that we find in verse number four, the first of three that we're going to study and expound tonight, is the word I. Can you say that word together tonight? Ready and go. I. Put your name with that word. On the count of three, just say your name. Ready? Your first name. One, two, three. See, when people come to the scriptures or come to their life, far often we get the wrong kind of mentality or psychology or, or mindset about the Christian life. Far too often we believe that we're born, we're created by God. I believe that everybody in this room would believe that. You're a fool if you don't. We are created by God and, and, and God looks down at our life and says, I, I want something for them to do and they need a, a, a will. We call it God's will for our life. And, and, and so I'm going to uh, find a future for them and I'm going to find a ministry for them and I'm going to find a life for them to change or somebody for them to marry or children for them to have or a divine appointment for them to uh, meet or be at. And, and, and God in our minds is out there and, and he's getting stuff ready. And far too often, we're waiting on God to finish it up. We're waiting on God to get it ready. We're waiting on God to reveal what he's been working on or, or what he's trying to figure out. And, and, and many times, we're looking at all the options, trying to see what angle of whatever God's working on that we kind of like or the desires that we kind of want. And God's out there getting his will for our life ready for us. The only problem is, that sounds great, but it's unbiblical. The Bible teaches the opposite. And this is why Christians many times are apathetic or so wrongly we ask our children, you know, what do you think you want to be when you grow up or what do you want to do? That's so pagan and humanistic. Oftentimes we're very humanistic in our Christianity, you know, trying to fit God's plan into our life instead of our life into God's preordained plan. 
And we wrongly say, what do you want to do? Instead of saying, what do you believe that God created you for? Why were you born? What is it that God made you for? And so this I in context, and we're going to come back to the context, and you're going to see it. It is teaching us from Genesis to Revelation. It's overarching and throughout all of the scripture that don't miss it. Here it is. The job came first. And that's the only reason that we came second. If there was no specific job, there would be, pardon my grammar here, there would be no specific you. And throughout the entire scripture, we see that God had something that needed to be done. He had his will that needed to be fulfilled in specifics. And he went and designed and created. You called out your name. Nobody can escape this. Not that you would want to. But far too often, we as Christians kind of rate ourselves from front row Baptist, if you will, to back row or, or faithful to unfaithful to however much we want to get in and not so. God says he brought you into this world for something that was already needed. It had a need before it ever had your name. God saw the need and he went and the Bible says, as Job put, uh, the Lord what giveth and the Lord taketh away. So that giving is God creating for a specific need. And we could take literally a Wednesday night series or a Sunday night series and teach this all throughout from Genesis to Revelation. But let's just, let's just kind of expound it a little bit as we think about that I that Jesus is talking about. You and I here being brought into the world and, and getting the right kind of scriptural or biblical mindset. First of all, just start with Adam, for instance. God created the heavens and the earth. He saw that it was good. It was wonderful. But God saw that God needed that glory uh, for his praise and for his glory. And he wanted fellowship with man. He walked with man in the cool of the day. And God wanted also this earth to have dominion over it. And so God created who? He created man. He created Adam. And I could expound that for a little while, but let's just keep fast forwarding. And God said, saw that it was good. It was good. It was good. And everything was doing good until he came to Adam. And he said, it is what? Not good. It's not good. And so what did he do? He created Eve for Adam. And you could just keep following and pulling on this thread all throughout the Bible. I mean, it's right in your face. Everywhere you go, by the way, sorry, guys, we're nothing more than but a job. That's why Eve was created. <laughs> and aren't we a job, ladies? He called her a what? A help what? Meat. Adam came first. And God saw. It isn't like it just occurred to him like God doesn't know. But in his divine plan, you've got to understand that God saw that Adam needed something. So he created Eve for Adam. And then in Genesis 3.15, we see the prophecy of Satan and Jesus there. And so Jesus is going to be born of a woman so that he can have a body, so that he can be sacrificed on a cross, so that he can shed sinless blood. Thank you for that song. Man, I was about ready to shout. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so there in Genesis 3.15, Jesus is prophesied. And so now Satan watches the seed of a woman. And so he thinks, ah, it's Abel because Abel brought the blood sacrifice because the devils believe they understand the scriptures. And so so he enters into Cain, who's of his father, the devil, and Cain kills Abel because Abel was going to carry on the, the seed. And so what did God do? We read in the scriptures. So then he wrote, he caused Eve to conceive who? Seth. You know why Seth was created? Because Abel was killed. 
And we keep going and we keep going and we keep going and we keep going all throughout the scriptures. Matter of fact, have you ever come to the Christmas story? And you ever hear the word as the angels speak, that holy thing which shall be born of you shall be called the son of the high. What do you mean thing? We're talking about creator God. Enrobed in human flesh and we're calling him a thing. Have you ever seen that uh, on, on uh, the uh, graphic design or something? I'm always like, thing? Thing? I mean, he is wonderful. He is counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Thing? Thing? Seriously? Thing? What is the thing in context of that scripture? Well, it's what we're teaching about the eye that none of us can escape. The thing that is being spoken of there. Let me, let, let, let's just look at it this way. We don't believe in the pre-existence of, of you and I, okay? We weren't floating around in times past, okay? But we do believe in the pre-existence of God Almighty, Jesus Christ. He's the lamb slain when? Before the foundation of the earth, right? And so Jesus put it this way. He said, the blood of bulls and goats, it didn't suffice. But he said, a body hath you prepared for me. The thing spoken of in the Christmas story is the body that was prepared for Jesus Christ to indwell. So the cross was the need, the body, Jesus Christ, all man, was the answer to the need. And we keep going through scripture. Matter of fact, quickly, keep your Bible open to John chapter number 9. And let's look at 2 Chronicles quickly. 2 Chronicles chapter number 6. 2 Chronicles chapter number 6. As quickly as you can, it's in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter number 6. We'll begin reading of verse number 9. We'll read just a couple verses here. It's important to see it. Speaking of David, by the way, who was brought into this world because there was a need, there was a job. That's the only reason he was there. It's such a simple truth and yet one that convicts and challenges me. You can already see the alarm clock going off in our Christian life. 2 Chronicles chapter number 6. By the way, uh, there's a lot of messages being preached in this truth. For instance, parents, marriages, Sunday school teachers, pastors, everybody is important. Everybody was created for a reason. And parents, your child is not, well, I hope this, that one ain't going to turn out, but I hope this one. No, 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 they all have to turn out. They all have a purpose. Notice 2 Chronicles chapter number 6 and starting in verse number 9. The Bible says, but I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. By the way, we're not going to digress, but we could even talk about places and cities and places. God had a need, and so he created a place for that many times. Jerusalem was one. If you study Melchizedek, the high priest, and Salem, and you follow to Mount Moriah with Abraham and Isaac up the hill. And then you follow Zion, all of that, all the way uh, to the temple, all the way to prophecy. Uh, I, hope, I hope we're getting this here today. But we won't talk about places. We'll talk about people. Notice, we'll continue. He said, but I've chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there and have chosen David to be over my people. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said, verse 8, to David, my father, God speaking, for as much as it was in thine heart to build a house for my name, thou didst well in that it was in thine heart. Verse 9 don't miss it. Notwithstanding, thou shalt not build the house. Pause. Verse 9. He's saying, I need the house built. Watch this. Notice this. But thy son, what's the next three words? Which shall come. Which shall come forth out of thy loins. He shall build the house 
for my name. This man was created for a job. Now, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I also believe in the free will of man. Don't get me wrong here. I believe that man can go their own ways as God spoke to Jerusalem and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I, I would gather you. I wanted to use you. I wanted to, 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 to bless you, but you would not. And so the simple point is this. Whoever you are, whatever you are, wherever you are, however you are, rich, poor, talented, up to, it doesn't matter. God brought you into this earth because something was out there that needed to be done. Somebody that needed to be married, a child that needed to be had, a grandchild that needed godly grandparents, a community that needed a church. I mean, look at the context. We've already seen it. A random blind man on a random road. No, the entire chapter is now dedicated to this man. The Pharisees and the disciples are taught, and, and we get so little of the Gospels, if you will. If the world was, uh, if, if Jesus, if it was written of everything Jesus did, the world couldn't contain the books. And yet an entire chapter in the Holy Scriptures are dedicated to this random man. No, look what Jesus said in verse 3. He said, no, 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 that the works of God might be made, what? Manifest in him. So that road... That journey was in God's future, and he created this man for that moment. We just had our 50th, and I was doing the church history, and we made a video, and over and over it kept coming up from our, uh, those, those there, the charter members, the founders, from way back, that there was a lady by the name of Myrtle Vaha who prayed for, they said, that she would say, I've been praying for something like 25 years. And she was throwing out a random number of right, right about when she thought it was that she started praying. And man, as I got, got to thinking of the uniqueness of that church out there in a teeny tiny little town and, and the missionaries and the church plants and, and just what God has done through that little ministry there, I was just overwhelmed and I thought only God could have done this. And then I got chills running up and down my arm when I realized that my dad was born right around the same time that that woman started to pray. And a young man by the name of Stephen Dice, after watching the video, never heard me say that. Came up in tears after he was there for the 50th. He's a church planner down in Carmi, Illinois. And he came up uh, almost shaking. He was in tears. And he said, look, he said, I want to tell you, there was a little old lady she had never heard of an independent Baptist church ever in her life. And she said she started attending our little church plant. And she said, look, she said, I have been praying for this kind of church. She didn't even know what it was called. But she said, I've been praying for this kind of church. And she named the year. And he said it was right in between. He got saved when he was like four or five or six somewhere right in there. She, she, said, she said she had been praying since in between the time he was born and the time he was saved, right around in there. And we could go on and on. When I see Pastor Jeremy's uh, picture uh, in the Evans building over there, I look at it as I'm walking through thinking about this alarm clock truth that keeps going on in my life. I knew, as is said of Esther, and we could do the Solomon and David thing all throughout the Bible, but maybe he was or she was brought to the kingdom for what? Shuts it. Who brought her? Who brought her? I believe that my sister is in Roanoke Rapids for this time. And, and I believe that you hope and she hopes that it's a long, long time. And I believe that each and every one of you uh, in this season of life, and maybe you're a lifer here and a long time, or maybe you're here for a sliver of time. My wife and I talk about that when somebody comes and they're a blessing and maybe God moves them on or they take a ministry or start a church or do something. We say, God, have them here for such a time as this. My wife and I went to um, Africa right after we got married many years ago, and, and we had never been overseas, and the world was now so much bigger. 
than we had ever seen before. And we went where my sister Rachel lives and, and we were there and we had brought some American food and they were going to have a party each night and just kind of get inside the compound because extremely third world, especially back in 2009 when we went, it was unimaginable. And so they wanted to cook pizza and play games each night there on the mission field. And each night we would come in and they were ready to play and we were just shook from what we had seen all day out in the villages and in the schools and under the trees and up the mountainside. I mean, people come and touching my wife's skin and, and just the poverty and the, and, and the average lifespan in the, in the 40s and people dying and one in four having a massive communicable disease and all of these things. And we were just wrecked. And, and they wanted to play games, and, and then they realized that the missions trip was, it was impacting us. And, and, and my wife began to talk to Jerry, and Jerry, who's not musical, he began to say a, a line or a couple words about this thought or that truth. And my wife would say something, and my wife grabbed out a piece of paper, and, and she began to write down lines of, uh, of words that would become a song just a few moments later. And I pulled out my phone with the little recorder, and, and somewhere I've still got the original recording, I mean, the melody came right away the song came right away because we were looking out in the road in front of their house seeing what they were writing about and the truth was this to, the world is so much bigger than we thought it was from little Washington Iowa and to someone in the world today their only hope is you when I fly somewhere, I realize there are thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of uh, pieces of luggage underneath the belly of that beast at O'Hare or Atlanta or wherever, Charlotte. And, and, and there are millions of luggage going here and there and who, only God knows who's what except there's a tag with my name on it. Yeah. And somewhere in the world today are many pieces of luggage with not just Pastor Jeremy's but these little girls and you, each and every one, with your name on it. I want you just to listen and take a little mission trip for just a moment. You can close your eyes and imagine being on a missions trip. And I want you to think about your life, what you were created for, and that, that, that person, that ministry, that calling, that life that God has for you to live and say, God, am I giving you my all? Not just fitting you into my plan, but fitting me into your great and mighty plan. Take a little mission trip for just, we won't play the whole song, about 30 seconds or so. Just take a little mission trip. Play it, guys, if you will. There we go. Thank you. Just... Close your eyes and imagine what we saw is they were writing this on scene and on site. Think about your eye. Their faces look so earnestly, their eyes are pleading longingly, wondering where their next meal will be. Just trying to as their life so quickly slips away with never a thought of their eternal destiny a world away how blessed we are to live in this great land of ours surrounded by such luxuries and wealth we think we know of sacrifice yet we so little of our lives it's time for us to look beyond ourselves there's someone you can reach someone's life that you can touch how could you give so little when we've been given so much someone's future is depending on what you 
Jesus is trying to say, look, I am literally the light of the world. And he is literally sitting in darkness from birth. And I am literally called to be the great physician and the healer. How dare I walk through? That's why he said, I must needs go through Samaria. Man, it, it, it convicts me, doesn't it? God has a purpose. When, when I come, we have a bus ministry, Pastor Kerbinet, and when, when I come in on Sunday morning, I don't see them as kids. They're just, you know, filling up space. No, they're an I. When I look at my kids, I don't just see them. Well, I wonder who's going to do what. wonder where they're going to go to college. wonder what they're going to do. No, no, no. I'm looking at them like God brought them into this world for some reason. Train up a child in the way he should go. I believe it's a specific way. I believe that we as parents ought to seek God's face and try to find why God created them. Very quickly, we must move on. Let's look at the second word. How many of you believe you know what the second word is? <laughs> Raise your hand. John chapter 9, would you look at it? In verse number 4, I, and then it's Jesus. Jesus said, must, must. Let's look at that word must for just a moment. That word must is more important than we could ever imagine. It's not I should. It's not I can. It's not I get to it or I'm up for it. It's not I decided to. It's I must. I must. It is placed upon us. It's not something that we asked for. It's not something that's given to us. It's something that's placed upon us. Imagine with me, I get home from work and I'm tired and I get in the air condition on a hot July summer day in Swoultree, Iowa, and I put my feet up and, oh, I'm excited to sit down, you know. I'm not trying to be selfish. I'm just trying to refresh just a little bit. And my son Aaron comes in and he says, hey, Dad, Andrew and Samuel, they want to go fishing down at the pond. And, and we'd love you, Dad. You, you, you've been gone all day. We'd love for you to come and, and bait the hook and come down and go fishing with us. In that moment, I can say, I'm a dad. I should. I think it's a good idea. I'm up for it. You know, I ought to do it. Don't miss this. Why? Because I want to be a good dad. This is what we're doing as Christians. Watch. I, I, I want to. I should. It's a good idea. It's a good testimony. It's a good everything. I should do it. But that's not what Jesus is talking about from cover to cover in the Bible. Here's what he's talking about. I sit down in the chair. Ready to relax a little bit. And Aaron comes busting in the door. Beat red in the face and he's screaming. You know, and he's like, what in the world? A bunch of wild, crazy people. What's going on? And he says, Dad, Dad, we were down at the pond. Yes, son, you want to go fit? What? 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 We were down at the pond and Andrew and Samuel was there. And, and Andrew got in the canoe. I told him not to, but at the edge of the canoe. And he went over. What did you do? I got out in the canoe and I looked down and I saw him. I felt his hand for a moment. And then he went under. Dad, you know that part of the pond is so deep. And, and I tried. And I, how long? Two to three minutes, Dad. I don't know. It took me that long to get up here. In that moment, I don't have a decision. It's a must. It is a moral. It is a physical a responsibility that is placed upon me. And this is Christianity. I don't get to decide to serve God. 
I am sick and tired, if you will, and I'm preaching to myself. We have to come to these youth conferences over and over and over, all over America and around the world, and beg and plead for a teenager to muster up a, okay, I think it's a good idea. There are people dying and going to hell. Yeah, they're, they're tying the 40 children in, in Israel, and they're massacring them and beheading them, and people around the world suicide at an all-time high in opioids and drugs at all time. Yeah, I have decided, oh, preacher, write my name down. Everybody get me up in front of church. I, I'll live for God for a couple weeks or maybe till next year till some college entices me or some friend persuades me or till some music besets me or till some temptation turns me aside. It's not my decision. Paul put it this way. He said, uh, the, the I preach uh, because the necessity of the gospel is laid upon me. He said, I have to. Uh, this is where you get uh, these kind of words uh, from the servants uh, in the New Testament. They said, I'm a bond slave. I'm a bond servant. He says, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. It is not your decision to go to church. Yeah, forsaking not the assembling of ourselves together, I guess I ought to know, must. It's not your decision to tell people about Jesus Christ. It never was. Get it outside of our little apathetic Christian minds. Stop. Yeah, you know, I'm glad, Brother Russ, that you're starting a class. Where I'm glad you're starting. No, 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 it's a must. It's placed upon you. The Bible said that he gave teachers to the church for the edifying, the building up of the saints. Why? So we can go turn the world upside down for the calls of Christ, whether it's your children or your grandchildren or your spouse or your neighbor or missions around the world. It is a must. And when you get a hold of that, it'll change your life. I heard a preacher one time come through our church, Marion Avenue, and he was the son of a famous, uh, well, I tell you, it was Dr. Curtis Hudson's son years ago, and he stood right over here by the piano, and he said something that kind of shocked us all, and then I got it as a teenager, and it shook me. It was around the same time I was called to preach. He said, I serve God because I have to. And I thought, no, 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 we're, we, don't, we don't want religious Christianity. And I preached a bunch about that. You know, I don't serve God because I have to. I serve God because I get to, but then I got it. He said, I've been given too much. Too much has been placed upon me. And far too often, we will kind of translate that like, yeah, you've got a good daddy. No, we got a good daddy. A father who's placed a must on us, who's given us an eye, and we have to. It's not I should. That's a conviction. It's not I can. That's an ability. It's not I will. That's a choice. It's not I decided to. That's a decision. It's not I get to. That's a desire. It's not I'm up for it. That is an option. It is a necessity. Let me now quote it to you or read it to you from Paul. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. We walk around glorying like, well... You know, did you notice, Pastor Covernat, that I joined the choir? Oh, hogwash on your decision to do that. Where's somebody that says, I I've got to, I must. And when we do it for the right reasons, it's not a religious, oh, I have to. No, it's I, I just got to. I've got to sing of his praises. Because if I don't, the Bible says the rocks will cry out. And I believe that we're living in a generation where the heavens have to declare the glory of God. And you got to go out on some mountainside to get away from these crazies on the earth today just to see the glory of the beauty praising God when there used to be churches and Christians and homes and families walking around that were lighthouses and testimonies and the salt that savors the glory of God it's in a must 
It's not a decision, but far too often in our American culture, we've become so stereotyped into what we could call second generation type uh, Christian mentality. I understand everybody gets saved for themselves. They've got to get saved, uh, uh, you know, between them and God, but yet there's a mentality. And by the way, churches get this mentality. They go, our Spanish church is a first-generation church mentality because many of them heard the gospel for the first time working out in fields in the Midwest, and they got saved, and their whole life changed, and, man, their church is on fire. Our church has gone through seasons where we move to a second and third and fourth and fifth-generation kind of Christian mentality, the stereotypes. Brother John said, I loved your testimony about getting saved as a teenager. That would be like a first-generation mentality of, I've got to. And me and some of my siblings and others wrote down some stereotypes of what we see and the tendencies that in our own heart. My wife is a sixth generation Christian. And I thank God for it. It works. And she's got a first generation uh, Christian mentality. But wait a minute. Listen carefully. Let me just give you a few of these. First generation Christians see Jesus as preeminent. Second generation Christians see him as important. Why? Because important without preeminence is a missing must. First generation Christians see the Bible truths and promises as shocking, new, exciting, and transformative. Second generation Christian mentality see them as good, normal, routine, and oftentimes just religious because the must is missing. First generation Christians are burdened for the lost. Why? Because you were a teenager that was lost and you had family members that were lost and friends that were lost and public school that was lost. Second generation Christians, they're often burdened by the lost. I was homeschooled and never went to public school until I was approaching 16 and went to public school for driver's ed. And we sat alphabetically and there was a young lady about 16 years of age that was beautiful. And she sat beside me and she was chosen to go in the same car to learn with the instructor there how to drive. And I was so excited that they picked her and we're going to be riding in the same car until it hit me. Because I, I was trying to be a good Christian till it hit me. I got a witness to this girl. Because I'm hearing preaching from my dad and Sunday school teachers about the lost. And I'm not saying that I didn't care about her soul. I was just burdened by it. Until I got older and I realized, you know my problem as a teenager, a church kid, is that I wasn't burdened for her, Brother Johnson. And I look back and think of my teenage years, I wasn't burdened for my friends. If I was burdened for them, I would have been a leader. I would have been an example. I wouldn't have said some of the things I did. And, and I wasn't a bad kid. I mean, if you were to rewind the, the clock, you wouldn't look at me like, oh, Joseph, he was that rebel. No, no, no. I, I was just a, a good church kid that was, I wasn't burdened for them. I was burdened by them. I was burdened by the world. Oh, the bad world out there. Why? Because the must was missing. I had not, it isn't a decision, it's a reception. And that's what we need to do tonight, a reception of the must. In other words, it's like the draft. You can be a dodger all you want, you can run and hide, but at some point in time, somebody's got to stand up and say, God's calling soldiers, and I'll receive the calling. Amen. It's out there. It's, he created me, and it's a must. It's a must. Where's your must? Eight billion people in the world. Yeah, I think it might give to missions. It's a must. Eight billion people in the world. I, I think I'll go to church. It's a must. Didn't we see the must when COVID came? Didn't we reveal what was really a must or what was a decision? 
First generation Christians embraced cost. Second generation Christians oftentimes embraced comfort. What can my church offer me instead of I've got to? I have to. I don't care if we got to stand outside with no, with no sound system, with no air conditioning. No, just travel. Go on a mission trip and you'll find people walking hours. Why? Because a must is beating inside their heart. They've got people into witchcraft back in their villages. It doesn't matter if they don't have light, nice lights and screens and sound system. Haven't we become so comfortable as second and third generation Christians in America? First generation Christians saw what they escaped. Second generation Christians wonder what they missed. First generation Christians tried their faith and faith without works is dead. Second generation Christians often just theory their faith. Would I be preaching if I didn't grow up in Larry Brown's home? Would my, would, would my son Aaron or my children, would they be sitting in church, Savannah Lacey? Would you, would you be doing this? And, and that devil crawls uh, in the back of your mind and, and you begin to theory it. But there has to come a day where you get in the scriptures that will change your life and say, no, 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 no. There is a must, a necessity laid upon me. And though none may join me, still I will follow. If my mom and dad forsake me, still I will follow. This is what ought to drive us each and every day. Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Until you've walked the halls of the burn unit, you'll walk past wherever that track rack is. With a kind of a guilty conscience. Oh, take a few. But when somebody in the room says, oh my God. I'm guilty. I'm convicted. And by the way, it's seasonal. I've been, see, I've woke up to the fact, Brother Jeremy, that I'm not living with a must. And every time you wake up, I'm not living with a must. Hey, teachers, you want to get revived? Church, you want to get revived? Piano player, organ player, musicians, I've loved everything today. Choir, I'm not trying to preach at you. I'm preaching with you as we preach with our church. You know how to get revived? Just wake up and smell the must roses. I must. You know, sometimes, Pastor Coburnett, you know, you always want to be excited. You always want to be topside. And I'm wrapping it up here. I don't know what time we're supposed to get done. I have a feeling. What, what time do you normally dismiss? Seven? Okay, I'm almost done. Listen carefully. Sometimes us preachers, we got to get to the pulpit. We got to just preach anyway. Instant in season and out of season. The Bible put it that way. But you know how to get in season real fast? Just wake up with a must. I've got certain playlists that I listen to. Certain things I put in the car. Teachers. Why? Because, man, I'll just be dragging along, and i got to do this, and i got to do that, and i got to do this. And I'll start listening. All of a sudden, the must will start be, it'll come in. It'll be placed on my shoulders. A song I listen to all the time is, May the Lord Find Us Faithful. Find Us Faithful. May the Lord find us faithful. May his word be our banner held high. And I'm a visionary kind of guy. I picture, you know, this banner of God's word, like, yeah! And I'm ready to go. We need to get stirred up in our must. Last word, and I'm finished. Look at it in John chapter 9 and verse number 4. It's the word work. It's the word work. Jesus said, I must work. This is Veterans Day, and I too thank you. Thank you for letting us go through the line and shake your hand. I don't know how old I was when I began to realize, I used to think that all military men were always out there fighting, you know, or they were always standing on guard, you know, Gomer Pyle, you know, standing on guard. 
or, you know, keeper of the guard, whatever it was. But that's how I always pictured it. And I began to talk as I got older, and I was like, hey, these are mechanics. These are computer techs, and they, they've got all kinds of, I mean, even cooks, right? All kinds of jobs. But why was there, as you look at the wars and you look at the times, go to 9-11, why was even just changing tires on tanks, why was their job, or changing, I guess tanks don't have tires, but you know what I'm saying, changing tires on, 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 on machinery, why was their work so driven? I mean, you saw him waving the flag, I imagine if you ask him, you may have seen active combat and all of that, but I imagine a lot of what you did too was day in and day out. But it was an accepted work for a higher purpose and calling. And this is why work's become a four-letter word. Nobody wants to work anymore. Why? Because there's no purpose, there's no call. I don't care if you flip burgers. There ought to be a purpose driving it so you can support missions, support your family, give to some widow, support this church. Bring glory and honor to God with your life. I'll explain it in this way if I can. There's a lot of biblical ways we can explain, but let's just bring a practical illustration. I mentioned 9-11. Do you know there was a lot of people that worked hard prior to 8.30, 9.30, 10 o'clock, and on, on 9-11-2001? I mean, there were firemen, EMTs, and police officers. But that day, the work was different. And they said, Pastor Jeremy, that they would have to send people out and drag people off the rubble because they were dying. They would die if they didn't come off from dehydration, from working not one day, but two days, three days. They were dragging them off. Why? Because somebody was down in the rubble that needed their work. It was a different kind of work. And let me just say, if you're going to have a good church, it's going to take hard work. The pendulum swung from the 60s where everybody talked about working so much. A lot of times people wouldn't take time for their family. And so there needed to be some adjustment. But the pendulum swung way too far in our churches. And we've talked for the past two decades about rest and respite and refreshment. That now the pendulum's over here in our culture. It's time for good old-fashioned. That's what I love to hear about the Sunday school class and all that. Good old-fashioned work. Why? Because somebody's down in the rubble. Somebody's by the well in John 4. Somebody's by the roadside in John 9. Somebody is needing the eye with a must and some God-given willingness to work. Father, bless us, I pray. May we surrender to the must. It's not a decision. It's been given. May we surrender to it. In Jesus' name, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I appreciate your patience. Pastor Coburnett, you come. Would you stand to your feet? I believe God's spoken to somebody's heart because he's spoken to mine. Would you come and just bow the knee and receive whatever it is that God spoke to you about? Just receive it and, and determine to write it upon the table of your heart so that when you go home, you won't forget it and that you'll wake up tomorrow and just say, must, I must, I must work. It's going to take some work. It's not always easy. It's not always conference time. It's not always special music time. It's not always rah-rah or parties or events. Sometimes it's just good old-fashioned work. Work, work, work. Why? Because you have an eye. You have an eye. You've been given a must. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast of Victory Baptist Church in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, led by Pastor Jeremy Coburnett. For more information about our ministry, please visit our website at vbcrr.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.